As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Michael Lloyd, Principal of Wycliffe Hall and author of Cafe Theology. He also recently co-authored a brilliant new book with Rachel Atkinson called Image Bearers. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. What I'd love to do is sort of go back to the beginning of of someone's journey. So would you tell us just a little bit, I mean, did you have any experience of God growing up? How did you get to to where you are? I know that's quite a long sort of history to to give us a potted answer, but but what was your experience? Which is a nice way of saying you're very old. Thank you. Uh, You're so welcome. (laughs) Um, Well, no, I was brought up in, in a Christian family, at least... From about the age of five, my um, my brother had a, a brain tumour and uh, had to have an operation. My mum kind of coped while she had to and then had a bit of a breakdown, went away to a, uh, was recommended to go to a Christian nursing home where medical care and prayer go hand in hand. And that's where I think my parents' faith came alive, became real. Um, and so from about the age of five, I was brought up in a, in a Christian family, just always assumed it was true. Um Went to university, got involved in the Christian Union there, heard it being argued for the first time. John Stott did a mission there in 1977, and um, I'd, I'd never heard it argued before. I'd, I assumed it was true, but I, but that was very exciting for me, to, to hear it uh, coming across as, as making sense, but also making sense of everything else. Um, so that was hugely important to me. And I think that the, the third kind of significant point really was um, when I was at the theological college, I was coming up to my final year. I was about to be launched as this kind of professional Christian, and suddenly the whole thing internally collapsed, and I didn't know what I believed. I went through a year of, of depression and doubt, and really had to think everything through from scratch, which is disconcerting when you're about to give your life to this, um, and. But I, I think I look back to it as my main qualification for ministry. I think I would have been 
a, a walking pastoral disaster if I'd not been through something. I mean, even more of a walking pastoral disaster if I'd not been through something like that and experienced what what a lot of people go through and experience. So those those are the kind of key moments I think in in my journey of faith. And what inspired you to study theology in the first place? Because you're now, I mean, not only are you a professional Christian, you're a professional theologian, but it started quite early on, didn't it, this desire to study theology? Yes. I mean, I think uh, there I was at university reading English, wondering what I'm going to do with an English degree, or quite possibly without one. It seemed eminently plausible (laughs) at the time. Um, (laughs) Thankfully, I did get one. And and I began to think, what am I going to do? What am I going to? What are my gifts? Where are they best used? And slowly, this kind of idea came to the surface, and I um, went on a, a week where you can go and be a you know shadow of vicar basically for a week, which I did and found that it was using every part of me. It was um, it, it just felt like me, and so I put myself on the selection conveyor belt within the Church of England, and prayed that God would get me off if it wasn't right, which he neglected to do. And he's probably still <laughs> regretting that, but it's, he's, he's lumbered with me now. Um, <laughs> and do you feel like there was a particular moment when you felt called to ordination or was it a kind of gradual process? It was a, it was a gradual thing. No, for me, and some people do, but no, I didn't. It was a gradual thing. It was a gradual sense that this is where my gifts would be best used. This is what I was for. Um, and that just grew until that final hiatus in the year before um, ordination. It just grew from there, really. And then you went on further to study even more sort of academic theology. What was the impetus behind that? Why did you not want to be a parish priest in, I guess, a sort of more traditional um, uh, I, means I did. Of the... I did want to be a parish priest and a more traditional kind of lifestyle. Um, uh, but I did better than I was expecting in my I took a degree as part of my training up in uh, Cranwell Hall in Durham and um, uh, thereby made myself vulnerable to my professor Stephen Sykes there and Tom Wright who was a friend, N.T. Wright um, the New Testament scholar who bullied me into um, taking the academic ministry seriously really, they, they basically said look if, if, it don't, if you don't like it you, don't, you can go back to being a vicar um, but you've got the gifts and you were therefore ought to explore whether that's something that God's calling you to. So so I started doing a doctorate and it went from there. Now, I, I don't know whether this is your experience of people that you have, um, you know, that you have lectured or, or, or anything like that. But I remember when I said that I was going to study theology there was uh, lots of people were like, oh, no, you, you can't study theology. You might lose your faith. How, how would you respond to people who suggest that studying theology may cause someone to lose their faith? Because that is often a common query, isn't it? I, I think that's, um, I think it's wrong. And I think it comes from a place of fear. Uh, if, if what we believe is true, it will stand up to any analysis, any critique, any evaluation, any, any being put under the microscope. And if it isn't, let's be shot of it. You know, let's not give our lives to this nonsense if it's not true. Um, so my experience is that the deeper you go into it, the bigger you, your vision and understanding of who God is. And after all, you know, if he's infinite, then all you're going to do is try and lessen the inadequacy of your theology. That's all you can do is get, make it slightly less inadequate. It's always going to be inadequate. 
because he's infinite and we're finite. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's about, but in my experience is that that's what happens, is that you you get a bigger and bigger understanding of God, which is more and more captivating, really. And obviously, as the principal of Wycliffe, you are, you know, you're a big fan of the kind of integration of faith and academia. Would you yep. perhaps share some of your insights about how you approach that integration? Because you don't always see that, do you? The kind of integration of a personal faith with the academic theology. No, but I mean, I think uh, I, I met somebody the other day for the first time and we got on well, uh, well a few months ago and um, uh, we had a really good chat and then we met up again a few weeks later, and in the course of that conversation, you said, um, that in the meantime, I Googled you. Uh, and that seems to me to be how relationships work. If you want to get to know somebody, you want to know what you can about them. You want to grow in your understanding of them in everywhere, not, ju not just kind of relational. You want to find out about them. And, and therefore, the two, for me, belong completely together. Uh, and so at Wycliffe, we have we start the day with prayer, we begin the week with a biblical exposition, and then we have the study um, as kind of integral to that. So we are, and we do we, our students go on missions. So it's and 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 I think they would tell you, I hope they would anyway, um, that what they learn in the classroom, they put into practice on missions, on placements, uh, in. in and and in and in worship, it, it's a completely integrated thing. And after all, we want to be people of integrity. We want to be people of integration, um, and all these different. If it is true, then it deserves all these uh, outworkings and applications. Is there any advice that you would give to, I guess, particularly a young person who's aspiring to pursue theology and perhaps they've heard a little bit of that, what I was talking about earlier, you know, if you can't study theology because you might lose your faith, are there any sort of safeguards that you would suggest they put in place or, or any advice that you would give about them going to pursue theology? Oh, well, I think two. One is keep up your own devotional life. That is important. Don't let that get pushed out by feeling, oh, well, I'm studying the Bible all the time. You know, no, this is a different way of uh, of using it and responding to it. And and it is the way it was originally for. That's how the early church used it. And it's so it, it is what it's for. So don't, don't let that slip would be my first piece of advice. And the second is, Find people who have been through this process and out the other side with a renewed, sharpened, uh, enlarged, expanded, enriched, critical faith um, and, and throw your questions at them. I, I've done that at various places. It, during the kind of year of doubt and depression I've mentioned, I wrote to various famous Christians and said, help. Uh, and they were, they were unanimously wonderful about finding time and... and spending time with me and answering questions. And um, so I think that's invaluable. Get yourself somebody who's been through that process because not everybody in the average church will understand the questions that you're wrestling with. They may be suspicious of it, like your, which you lose your, lose your faith kind of um, person, that voice. Um, so find people who, who, who know and who understand and who've come out and for whom it has been um, a deepening and, and exciting journey. 
I suppose one person that might be able to help on this journey is something that you were as chaplain at, at, yeah. at a university. That's obviously not the case for everyone. Not all universities have university chaplains or, you know, it might not always look the same. But what was your experience like as a university chaplain? You must have had incredible conversations with students from all walks of life. Yes. No, I, I, I love being a chaplain. Um, it's, it's a really significant role. You're often the adult that people most get to know, actually, um, apart perhaps from their tutor, sometimes even more than their tutor. Uh, you are the kind of the other grown-up person who they will meet at meals or meet on the rugby touchline or the netball touchline or whatever it might be. Um, and it's not, you know, my experience was that people were divided into about three groups. There's the kind of chapel crowd, and you get to know them particularly well, obviously. There's the kind of not chapel, but occasionally darken the door types. And then there's the never darken the door types. And of those three groups, the people who came to see me pastorally, there were more of the never darken the door than of the other the other two. Um, that that was actually a very significant... Uh, you know, people... Sometimes it was just as a counsellor, because you were there with a degree, hopefully, of um, personal relations kind of skill and pastoral skill, and they would just come at that level. Um, other times, people wanted to ask questions. They're away from home for the first time. They're beginning to say, well, I know that's what my parents stand for and live for, but what do I think and where do I stand and what am I going to live for? What am I going to give my life to? What is worth giving one's life to? And... Um, uh, my experience is that they do that a lot. So it's it, it's a fantastic job. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Michael, I wonder if some of those conversations with you as chaplain perhaps informed this brilliant book, Cafe Theology, which unfortunately came out just after I'd finished my degree because you basically summarised my entire three-year degree in this wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and you managed to get the most... And it's most... much cheaper than a degree. <laughs> yes, yes. But how did you manage to get these very complex theological ideas and kind of distill them in such a way that was so accessible and in such a conversational style? I think I think the word conversation is the key one there. I mean, as a college chaplain, you have conversations the whole time with people who have never studied theology, uh, possibly don't believe any of it. Uh, and so you know the sorts of questions that they have, you know the sorts of things that get through to them and the sorts of things that don't because you see the glazed look in their eyes as you witter on <laughs> at, at inordinate length. And um, uh, so you try and cut those things out. Of course, in the book, you can't see somebody's glazed expression, uh, <laughs> but, you, but you hope that it's um, not universal. Uh, so it, it is, that's that's what it's about. It's as uh, in conversation and indeed preaching, Again, you can see the same look coming over a congregation's um, faces when you when you speak. So you kind of begin to learn the language of what gets across, hopefully. And what was the motivation behind it? Why are you so passionate about making these difficult ideas accessible? Well, I think because if if our purpose is to get to know God and have a relationship with God, you need to know all you can about who he is. Um, and if we are 
made if human beings are made in the image of God, if that's what makes them human, that's only helpful if we have some idea of what God is like. Otherwise, it's a pretty redundant concept. Um, and therefore, distilling what God is like from the scriptures and the Christian tradition seems to me to be helping people to be human, helping people to live, therefore, fulfilled lives and lives that mesh with God's purposes the way the world was set up and who they were meant to be. That seems to me to, me to be worth doing. Michael, there's a brilliant line in your book where you say that if theology doesn't stretch our minds, it probably won't stretch our lives. I mean, does that mean that we should all be studying theology then, do you think? Yes. <laughs> I mean, not not necessarily formally, not necessarily in a degree, although, you know, we still have places at Wycliffe. Um, <laughs> but, but in terms of studying, yes, because theology is from two Greek words, Theos meaning God and Logos meaning word. It's thinking about God. It's communication about God. Everybody has to do that one way or another. The question is whether you're going to do it with any, with any depth and rigor uh, or whether you're going to kind of surface ride it. Um, and so, yes, everybody has to do that if they're going to grow in their understanding of who God is and, uh, and therefore their humanity. I mean, do you think that's true just for Christians or do you think there's a sense in whatever your worldview is actually it's a really helpful thing to study to work out what you do believe? Well, there's a sense in which everybody has a theology because everybody gets their meaning from something, their value from something. Uh, there's something that is most valuable to them, to which they orientate themselves in, so, in some way. So to, to a certain extent, everybody has uh, a God. But then I do, yes, I do think that people... Uh, who wouldn't describe themselves as, as people of faith can learn hugely from looking at some of the deeper traditions that there have been that have sustained and nourished people throughout centuries. Something you know, some of these religious traditions have have credibility because they've got depth, they've got time depth, they have stood the test of different cultures and different contexts and different centuries, and they've stood up and people have found that they uh, are transformative. And and therefore, that, I think, is worth respect. I think it's worth exploration. It's worth seeing. It's always worth trying to see how the world looks through somebody else's eyes because that enriches and enlarges your own perspective. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of seeing the world through different people's eyes because from what I can tell, your sort of church upbringing has been fairly diverse in terms of the denominations that you've been involved in and, and the type of worship. And presumably the Wycliffe Ordinands all come from a variety of different backgrounds to a certain extent. So how can we encourage meaningful conversation while remaining uh, respectful and understanding of those who obviously hold divergent views, perhaps within Christianity, but, but also, as we were talking about there, perhaps those who hold different worldviews and theologies to us? One of, one of the academic values that we have at Wycliffe is intellectual fearlessness. As I said earlier, if this thing is true, it will stand up to any analysis or uh, investigation. Um, so we've got nothing to fear from subjecting it to critique and everything to gain. And I want to establish in myself and in others this fearless attitude that any book that I read or any person I speak to 
the, the author or the person is made in the image of God, and therefore I have something to learn about God from this person. Not uncritically, as I hope that my readers are critical of, of me and my perspectives and what I write, um, my general verbiage. But, uh, but I have something to learn, and therefore um, I want... And I want to do that, um, be it, you know, somebody who's a complete atheist out to attack the Christian faith, I still want respectfully to listen to their perspective because I will have something to learn from that process. Well, I suppose kind of linked to that, how do you weigh up whether a particular doctrine is true or false? I guess perhaps within that context of of um, respecting everyone's opinions, you know, taking on what they've said and thinking it through for yourself. Well, there's a number of different ways of doing that. There's, there's, there's some you can rule out because they don't make sense. They're not internally coherent or, or consistent. Uh, and reason will rule out some options for you. It won't tell you what to believe. Reason can't tell you what to believe, but it can tell you if this statement is compatible with that statement. Um, and therefore, it can tell you if this package of views stands up or whether it doesn't. It won't actually tell you whether it's true or not, but it will tell you whether it's consistent. Um, and I think you can do a lot through the way in which historians and scientists weigh up whether something is true or not. Basically, they want uh, to know that something is self-consistent, that it doesn't have contradictions in it. They want to know that it fits the facts, now uh, that it's not contrary to any known fact, and they want to know that, that it sheds light on, ideally, an area wider than the one that it was, it was set up to, to explain. Uh, so there's, that will get you a certain distance, I think. Um, obviously, as a Christian, I think that you wouldn't know what God is like uh, unless he's made himself known in some way and that he has done in the person of Jesus. And therefore, you have constantly to be comparing what people speculate about God with does that mesh with the kind of richness of character and insight that I see uh, in the person of Jesus himself. So it's that kind of mesh that one is looking for uh, when one's assessing the truth of a theological statement. I suppose you've been studying theology for a really long time. You've been teaching theology. Yes, thank you. Are Is there that any old thing major... again? <laughs> a really long time. Yes. Are there any doctrines where you've perhaps changed your mind on something or sort of shifted your thinking through further study? Not perhaps doctrines per se. Um, you know, the, the basic beliefs that are included in the creed, I don't think I have shifted on. Although I think I would now express very differently than I would have done, and I hope that's in a good direction and that's a richer kind of understanding that, than it was. I think those are things you can just constantly, constantly get go deeper into. Um, rather like Augustine said about the scriptures, you know, safe enough for a child to play in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Well, that's that's the basic doctrines of the church. Um but on on kind of what I would still regard as fairly minor uh, issues, I think I have changed my mind. So yes, uh, on the ordination of women, for instance, I, I changed my mind. Um, I used to be opposed to it. I used to have problems with one or two of the passages in the New Testament that seem at first sight uh, to look hostile to it. Um, and 
the more I went into it, the more I thought, no, actually, when you, when you look at it carefully, those objections rather melt away. And and then you get bits where, for instance, uh, when Mary and Martha, you know, Mary comes and sits at the feet of Jesus. That is a phrase that's used of somebody's relationship to their rabbi. You sit at the feet of your rabbi. That kind of suggests that she is one of the one of the disciples, um, and and that would have been unthinkable at the time in the world of Jesus' day. That would have been highly improper and irregular, uh, and yet he praises her for doing it and cuts off the criticism that Martha makes of her. So that seems to me to be quite significant. Once one's um, found that the verses that seem to be against it aren't in my view. Um, so that, that is, it's around the edges, yes, I've changed my mind on a number of things, but the, the basics I've found to be a really s supportive structure um, through this very long life of which you've been hinting. <laughs> Well, Michael, you shared so kindly and, and vulnerably about your period of sort of doubt and depression. I mean, are there any things that still cause you to doubt your faith? Or do you feel like now, actually, you sort of, as you say, that the fundamentals are there and it's just sort of working out some of the peripheral things on, on the sidelines a bit? I, I, don't, I don't wrestle with things I haven't done significantly or pain, significantly painfully since that time that's not to say that that couldn't change sometimes there's kind of psychological causes for that sort of thing but uh, there's also just a sense of I, i've often likened the theological journey to being a bit like um rock climbing which i have to say have to say i have never done and never would because <laughs> i don't have the head for it um but it seems to me that you have four things to hold on with you've got two hands and two feet um if you, it's not a good idea to let go with all of them. That wouldn't work well. It wouldn't end well. But it's quite, if you don't let go with any of them, you're never going to move. And I think it's the same with, with theology. You have to be prepared to let go of an inadequate view of God in order to reach for something slightly less inadequate, higher up. That way you can make progress. That way you can keep moving upwards. Um, and I think um, that's, yeah, that, that's what I, so sometimes the letting go of something can be quite painful because you've built a lot on it. It means a lot to you. And suddenly you think, actually, this doesn't work. That can be quite painful. So if I got depression again through something like that, okay. Um, but uh, But you've got to keep climbing higher. Michael, we're going to be talking some more about um, your research into the problem of evil and the brilliant book that you've co-written um, with Rachel called Image Bearers. But just as we come to the end of this podcast, are you able in any way to sort of summarise why you personally, why does Reverend Dr. Michael Lloyd still believe in God after years of studying and wrestling and doubting? Is, is there a particular thing or a kind of plethora of things that you know, culminate into a strong belief in God. I think. I think for me, like uh, the moral argument for, for the existence of God is is a very strong one. In the sense that we're all moral beings, we all want to treat people decently. We don't always do it, but we know that we should. We feel shoddy when we don't. We know that people are valuable. 
But actually, where does that value come from? Um, basically, value is a personal quality. You can be valued by a person. You can't be valued by an impersonal force. You can't be valued by electricity or gravity or something like that. Um, only a person can value you. And if there is a person there who loves us profoundly, um, that gives a ground for the value that each of us actually knows to be the case. And I don't think there's any other explanation that puts ground under our feet at our best moments uh, in the way that uh, belief in a personal God does. Brilliant. Well, as I said, we're not finished with you yet, Michael. We've got lots more to delve into, but that's all we've got time for today. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.